righty, let's go ahead and dive into it. Um, Yeah, 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 we have been doing this uh, study um, through the order of salvation, uh, affectionately known to us as the Ordo Salutis uh, in Latin. We uh, spent a couple weeks in union with Christ back in 2016, uh, dove into the doctrine of election to start the new year, because what better way to start the new year? Uh, Calling and regeneration, we combine together, talking about the fact that God has to take this initiative to make life where there once was death. Uh, And then last week, we combined repentance and faith in what was, without a doubt, sort of trying to drink from a fire hydrant. Uh, um, uh, But we're going to revisit that today when we talk about this next uh, topic. That's kind of cool the way that animated, except for that just cut off. I was bragging on it, and it cut off. Um, But no, we're going to talk today about a uh, a doctrine that... um, uh, one of the guys who was uh, very central to the uh, Reformation was a guy named John Calvin, and John Calvin said that the doctrine of justification is really the sort of foundation upon which the church stands or falls. In other words, if you can get this doctrine right, you're ready to have a church. If you can understand this foundationally, it will actually guide your church into being a healthy place. And so I want to dive into this today and talk about uh, a handful of these, uh, these questions that arise for us. Um, in uh, the, one of the best books that I think you can get your hands on about this doctrine uh, 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 called, uh, uh, called The Cross of Christ by John R.W. Stott. In the 20th century, there really are a handful of what we would call popular books, popular Christian books, that you just kind of got to read. And Stott's The Cross of Christ is without a doubt in that top 10 list. No question about it. And one of the things that Stott talks about, and I'm going to quote him here in just a little bit, is about God's problem. God has a problem, but he at least has the good sense to put it in quotes when he talks about God's problem. But he takes it from Ezekiel chapter 18, of all places in the Bible, to sort of describe what it is that God has as a problem. Because in, that, in that, uh, that chapter, Ezekiel says that God declares that he takes, and the phrase he uses is, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In other words, he loves his creatures. That God adores the crown of his creation, man. He loves mankind. He loves the interaction, the joy that comes from his interaction with his people. In other words, in as much as there is at the center of the universe, like we talked about for our entire winter quarter last winter, a law at the center of God's heart, the Ten Commandments that God expresses and said, this is the thing, these are the things that are the most near and dear to my heart about what is and what should protect you. There's also love at the center of the universe, that God loves his creatures. <laughs> so the problem, God's dilemma that he has is how on the one hand can I have my law, which is perfect and exacting and is never something that I overlook, but on the other hand, really love my creatures so much that I long for them to be in fellowship with me? How do you have both of those things in the same place with sinful man? Um, If God decides that he's going to honor his love to the exclusion of his law, 
then what happens? Basically, he ceases to be righteous and just. But if he honors his law to the exclusion of his love, (laughs) we're all dust. (laughs) None of us makes it in that sort of scenario. And so what Stott says is that God has a dilemma. There's a dilemma that God has. And it's been noticed by people throughout the church uh, for quite some time. About 150, 160 years ago, there was a a Scottish uh, pastor by the name of Horatius Bonner. You may notice his name every now and then in your hymnals because he wrote a lot of the hymns that we know. But he also wrote some fantastic books on pastoral theology where he talks about this kind of stuff. And at one point he says this. He says, look, law and love are the two things that have to be reconciled. The one can't give way to the other. Both must stand, listen to this, the flair for the dramatic, else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. I don't have any idea what that means, but apparently it's a bad thing. <laughs> it ought to, it's important. In other words, what I think he's saying is the world really does not make sense. And for our purposes this morning, I want to say your inner world doesn't make sense until you solve God's dilemma, until you find a way of reconciling that. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith is the theological description for how to deal with, that, with, that, with God's dilemma. And if it's true that the pillars of the universe will be shaken if we don't solve that, then maybe it's true that if we do solve it, the pillars of my own universe may not be as shaken as who knows. Maybe they were when you came in this morning. I know I had a pretty crazy week. Justification by grace through faith. That's Martin Luther uh, hutched over over a book because apparently that's what uh, happens here. Three things about it. I want to say that justification involves legal substitution, that it is applied by imputation, and it is received by faith alone. Now, one of the great things about coming to Sunday school this particular morning is you get all kinds of fancy words. You're like, ooh, what are these fancy words, Les? Everything's so fancy. I just want to say the word fancy because it's just, it's funny to me today. Again, it's been one of those kind of weeks, okay? Justification by grace through faith. Let's start with the first one that involves a legal substitution. Look, God has sworn that he will not let sin go unpunished. And yet he has also determined that he's going to show mercy to his people. Those are the two great facts. And the question that's in front of us this morning is how can he resolve this? Well, the Bible tells us that God sent his son to be our substitute. That's the first principle that you've got to understand is that God allows for stand-ins. He allows substitutes. And he came to take care of our twofold problem. The first thing that Jesus came to do that we are most naturally familiar with is that Jesus came to be our death substitute. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just his physical pain that made the cross what it was. Um, What it was, was he underwent the actual punishment and rejection of his father. That was the real real climax of the cross. The, The physical pain and the torment and sort of the pit in the stomach that you get when you read the horrific things that were being inflicted on the Son of God are not themselves the point of the cross. The physical sufferings are meant to lead us to what was really profound in that moment. And that is that God himself turned his back on his son 
in that extraordinary moment where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus was at that moment substituting himself for the place where you and I ought to have been. So that when you get to Isaiah 53, you get, you get the prophets talking like this. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Uh, when I was younger, <clears throat> uh, when I was in high school actually, I had a car accident uh, where I rear-ended, uh, uh, honestly, and th- this is not me being defensive about it. I think my father would bear witness to this, uh, uh, where he <laughs> here, um, uh, that, that it was a very gentle bump in the rear of another car. Um, but uh, the car full of people who were in the car that I hit uh, were not the most honest of people. Uh, the damage was pretty insignificant, but of course the the, the, the damage to their suddenly aching backs was very significant. Uh, and so the whole carload of people decided to take us on, on the old lawsuit highway. It was the, was the only thing that I had talked about. But here's the deal. The crazy part about what went down about that is I never knew what all was going on about that incident and how much legal struggle was going on until years later. <laughs> because my father the entire time was the one going through the court battles. He was the one who was taking the hit for his son's stupidity and never even shared it with me until years and years later. Now, you can question his parenting about it. It turned out that justice did, in fact, prevail uh, and ruled in our favor. But I remember being overwhelmed by that, at the thought that there was my father you know, sort of shielding me from an abuse and from a punishment that was wanting to be exacted against me for my foolishness. That's the death substitute. That's the idea that there is a shield out there whereby when the wrath of God is being poured out upon his people, someone absorbs that debt. And that's what we say. It's the most common way of talking about what Jesus did. He died on the cross for my sins. Is there anything that's more common in sort of southern religious parlance than that idea? But (laughs) it's not all of justification. Because justification is not just that Jesus was our death substitute, but as it turns out, he was also our life substitute. And frankly, if there's anything that people miss about justification, it's this right here. Because from the beginning of Jesus' life, Jesus did everything that God requires of a human being. He perfectly performed it. At every moment of his life, Jesus was actively doing everything that a human being needed to do in order to be acceptable by God. He was perfectly righteous. He was loving God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength, and he was loving his neighbor as himself at every single moment. That's the reason why you get the the New Testament bragging on Jesus, because it was good news for this reason. In other words, he kept these things perfect. Romans 5.18, this was one, this this is underline worthy, because it's begun to become a big deal by the time we get to the end of this. He says this, just as the result of one man's trespass. Now, who is Paul talking about in Romans 5 there? He's talking about Adam, okay? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, 
the result of that one trespass was condemnation for all men. This is a very big deal, very big deal to get. When God talks to Adam and Eve and tells him to stay away from the tree, it is not just a contract that he's making with between just he and Adam. It is also a contract between Adam and every single other person that would come after him. Does that make sense? So when one person fails, the one trespass brought condemnation to all, Paul says. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't like the sound of that. Well, don't, but don't, don't, <laughs> don't get too upset too quickly because the very next thing he says is in verse 18 of chapter five of Romans, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Wow. <laughs> in other words, this is the way God does. He allows life substitutes. Um, okay. I think this was the moment that I became a Christian. I'm 49 years old, and I'm not exactly sure when I became a Christian. But if there was a moment when, like, the lights popped on, it was in my first semester of seminary. And I was sitting in class with my New Testament professor, Dr. Knox Chamblin. And he was lecturing from the Gospel of John. And he said that for most people, especially in southern religious worlds, they grow up with the idea that Jesus died for my sin. But he said, if that is all you have, then I'll bet that you're something of an insecure Christian. And at that moment, I looked up from my notes and thought, wait a minute, how does he know? He said, but that's not all that Jesus did. If all Jesus did was to die on the cross to save you from your sins, then where that brings you is to a position of neutrality. Yes, you are morally forgiven, but you do not have what God requires. I used to draw this line for, for, for college students on, on napkins all the time where I would say, look, here is infinite evil on this side. The Bible's description of you is not super complimentary. You're down here somewhere, okay? And over here is infinite holiness and righteousness, what God requires. This is what he requires for people to go to heaven. But if all you have is the forgiveness of sins, all it's done is brought you to zero. And you know what happens after that? You go back on probation. In other words, you get on your knees and you're kind of like, oh, okay, Lord, I did it again. I did it again. And frankly, I'm wondering like how many times it's going to happen again. But you know, uh, maybe just this one time, please, 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 please. Get your fingers crossed. Maybe sometime you'll sense some forgiveness. If forgiveness feels like going back on probation and you sort of get this mental image of a, of a begrudging God, okay, look, okay, for this time and this time only, all right, I've had enough of this. I know you've had enough of this. This is where it all stops. <clears throat> if that's the idea that when you get up from your knees, you're like, okay, okay, you know, work harder this time, that's not the gospel. It's not very good news because he's not just our death substitute He's our life substitute. In other words, what he gives to us, what he substitutes for us, is his perfect life. You do not walk away from the transaction of the gospel simply with a reprieve from your sins. But you actually receive from that every single thing that Jesus did. So that when God looks at you, it is as if he is looking at his son. And so all of the times 
in which God is bragging upon his son, you have the right as a Christian to take that affection for yourself. This is a fun little fun fact about the New Testament. You know, God only gets three speaking parts in the whole New Testament. You know this? God the Father. Three speaking parts throughout the whole New Testament. Do you know in every single time he's bragging about his son? And every time. Why are they so, and why were the disciples so fixated on this? Because they knew that if they were in Christ, they partook of that joy and of that affection. See, so God has solved his dilemma. Isn't this fascinating? Substitution is the solution to the dilemma. At the very moment of Jesus' death on the cross, his law and his love are fully fulfilled. Christ has fulfilled God's holy oath to punish sin, and at the exact same time, he was struck to satisfy the love of God because what he's done, finally, once for all, has secured a people for the Lord God. So that, in Romans 3.26, he might be both just, upholding his law, and the justifier, the one who pulls his people in, of those who believe. Wow, listen to Horatius Bonner. It's fun to hear him kind of get all cooked up about this in in 1860-whatever. Never has there been love like this love of God, so large, so broad, so glorious, so self-sacrificing. Yet never has the law been seen so pure, so broad, so glorious, so unbreakable. But there has been no compromise. Law and love have both had their full scope. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered to the full. The one in all its severity, the other in all its tenderness. Love has never been more truly love, and the law has never been so truly law than in this conjunction of the two. Um, Look, like that's beautiful. (laughs) And if it's not beautiful to you yet, then then you're not listening. So there. Let's throw out some illustrations. And I hesitate for this one illustration because it's, it's a, it, this, this is, this is uh, descriptive, not prescriptive, okay, when I do this. But there was a comedian years ago, bear with me, I traveled for a living, and for a while I had XM radio, and these comedians would come on uh, the thing, and they were, you know, it, it was funny for about 10 minutes. But a guy named Mike Birbiglio tells this story about a mess that he found himself in when college. Uh, and the class apparently was computers and networks. Uh, and he said, you know, at the end of the first class, he realized that this was so far over his head that he made one of those great college student decisions, which is never to return to the class. (laughs) Except for the class that was right before, the last day of class, right before the final, to see if somehow, some way, he might be able to sort of, you know, get through this little problem. Well, he says as he sits down in the class, a friend uh, leans over next to him and goes, hey, do you think we're going to get the final exam back today? And he was like, what final exam? <laughs> That's next week. He was like, no, dude, you missed the final, <laughs> you missed the final exam. And so he was like, ah. So Bermiglio goes to his professor's office to um, beg slash lie um, <laughs> that he had misunderstood the syllabus or something and, uh, you know, needed to find some way to uh, see if he could retake the final. And the professor looked at him and said, look, no, there's no way. He goes, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm simply going to give you the worst grade in the class. That's what I'm going to do. In other words, the person, you'll get the grade of the person that did the worst on their test, and you'll get that particular grade. And so in his whole bit, he was like, for me, that was great news because that's what I would have gotten if I had taken the test. <laughs> I would have had the lowest grade, I promise you. Um, but as it turns out, the person who made the worst grade in the class had just barely passed the test. <laughs> 
So that means that Mike passed the test, and it means that he passed the class. Now look, like I said, college students, descriptive, not prescriptive. This is not like some clever ploy where someone's being like, so that works? Like you can do that? No. The point is this. Mike passed the test and passed the class because pardon doesn't just mean that you're not going to be penalized for missing the exam. It means that you get someone else's grade. And it's a perfect grade, and it's a righteous grade. Uh, Justification means getting the grade that you did not deserve. Getting the grade that you did not deserve. Okay, so there's a legal substitution that goes on. Oh, this was my quote. I wanted you to see that. Well, see, that's when I don't pay attention to things. So let's go to to imputation here. Imputation uh, uh, is the next sort of doctrine. Substitution is the first word I want you to get. Secondly is the word imputation. Uh, John Stott says this about substitution. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Now look, my guess is you're at least somewhat vaguely aware of that particular idea. But the question I want to entertain now is, is how? How does what Christ did in his dying get to me? That's the question. How do I come in possession of that? And the answer is in an act called imputation. Now, like I said, we love to use big words, and it pays to enrich your word power, uh, as Reader's Digest used to tell us in the day, as anyone below the age of 30 is going, what is Reader's Digest? And that's okay. Ask your parents. The word imputation just means to transfer something, okay? To transfer something. There used to be an expression that we don't use anymore where someone would say, no, 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 you're imputing motives to me. What did that mean when you said that to someone? What you meant was, you are treating me as if I have these certain motives. And that's a great sort of definition of imputation. Imputation is treating someone as if. And there's really no better place in the Bible to look at this than 2 Corinthians 5.21. Or is it 1 Corinthians? I think it's 2 Corinthians. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a good one. You ought to memorize that one. God made him. Now, does that mean that God made Jesus sinful in his nature? No. What it means is, is that on the cross, God decided that he would treat Jesus as if he was you. Jesus was declared legally sinful and treated like a sinner. And so therefore, he was held liable for the record of the sinner, right? In other words, uh, uh, we are legally declared to be righteous uh, uh, if God treats us as if, because Jesus was legally declared to be sinful. God treated Jesus as if he was a sinner so that he could treat us as if we were righteous. Hear all the as ifs going on? That is imputation, and it is wonderful. First Colossians 1.22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. 
without blemish, and free from accusation. The word present there is actually a legal term. That's a legal term from ancient Near Eastern culture. And the idea was to, to, to appear before a judge in a court. You can now be presented as someone who is without blemish and free from accusation. You know, I will never forget my first experience in court. It was different from the rear-ending episode that we just talked about. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, are we going to get Les's entire criminal record today? You very well might. <clears throat> because there's no question, there's no doubt that it was a clearly marked double yellow line uh, that I passed around. But the, 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 the blue-haired elderly person in front of me that inexplicably was driving 25 miles an hour and did not respect the fact that I was late for, no less, youth group on this particular occasion. Um, you know, the police clearly got me going over 35 miles an hour and, you know, I did it, whatever else. The real tragedy, though, of that moment where, you know, the officer is sort of leaning into the, into the uh, door and writing it all out and hands it to you is he explains to you at the end of when you must appear in court, drum roll, please, and then the prepositional phrase, with your parents. Oh. So there's no way that I'm not going to be able to do this. So, you know, I go with my dad to court. Uh, we're in Memphis, you know, and you're in there with the rest of the criminals. Um, and I remember what, what, the, what, what the judge made all the rest of the, uh, the uh, 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 adolescent <laughs> offenders, uh, of which they were legion that particular morning. Um, he made them all like stand up in front of the thing and he asked them all how you would plead. And so I watched the first four or five people go at it and I was like, man, this is, this is not gonna be good at all. And I'm telling you, here I am all these many years later, I can pull up and conjure that, that sort of, that, that internal feeling of having to stand there and, the, and this judge look at you and say, you're, you're, you're accused here of passing on a double yellow line and speeding, like, how do you plead? And it was just like, guilty. Your voice kind of cracks and not because of puberty. You're, you're just completely intimidated by this whole experience, right? Just, just having to, to express the word guilty was so stunning for me. My guess is that was the judge's point. It's, it's purposeful, isn't it? See, I'm getting all the, all the officers of the law being like, you're one of those people. Look, here's the point. Every one of us stands in front of a, 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 a sort of a, a spiritual courtroom and the books are open and the judge of all the earth is asking you how you plead and you are a fool to say that you're going to plead anything else other than guilty. But the beauty of justification by grace through faith is that God has brought the gavel down and given a new verdict. And the verdict is that you are not guilty. He has cleared your record. And not only has he cleared your record, but he's given you a record of someone who actually never passed on a double yellow line. Never passed it. It's, been, it's not just been expunged. It's been filled up with perfection. And look, this is the good part. Am I to the good part here? <clears throat> this makes the Christian more secure than they could possibly imagine. And this is why justification, John Calvin said, you don't have a church if this is not pumping through the lifeblood of your people. We are more secure because we are told that Christ stands before the Father as our representative, as our advocate. And like I said a few weeks ago, what that means is, is Jesus is not, therefore, standing in front of God and asking him for mercy on your behalf. Because the, 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 of substitution and imputation, he's now asking his Father for justice 
on your behalf. And what this means this is when Jesus stands up there, the law that used to condemn me is now for me. There is no possible way that you could be more loved by God than this. There's no possible way for you to be safer. There's no possible way for you to be more secure. And at least John Calvin thought that was important enough to decide whether there really was even a, um, whether there even was a, a, a church in the midst of that. Look, at this point, it's really good to start throwing you some, some illustrations. And let me see if I can dive into this. I want to do saluting the uniform in just a second. But uh, let's do this one next. I wonder how many of people in this room can name who this brother is right here. Now, look, don't, don't raise your hand. I'm not going to give a quiz to you about who this person is. Um, this is a guy named Dickie Simpkins, okay? The fascinating thing about this uh, uh, NBA player is he has won as many national championships as LeBron James, Dickie Simpkins. And three of those championships were won uh, when the Bulls were on their big run in the mid-90s. This guy was on the same team with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen during the great Bulls run of the 90s. But here's the thing. In each of those three championship runs that the Bulls pulled off, Dickie Simpson, uh, Simpkins scored exactly zero points, zero rebounds, zero assists, zero steals, and played exactly zero minutes during those championship games. But you know what's crazy? He got the exact same ring. He got to participate in the team parades at the end of the championship. He received the same cheers from adoring fans as Jordan Pippen did and all the other members of the team. But in retrospect, he didn't actually have any merit in himself to receive any of those things. That's justification to get something that we didn't lift a finger to receive, but that Jesus earned on our behalf. All the credit for a good, perfectly loving and just life and the joy and delight of the Father comes to you even though you didn't do a thing to earn it. Which brings me to the story of the second one. I was driving, I was driving across campus. It's really funny how many of these illustrations this morning have to do with me on the road. This is fascinating. My family will tell you that their father is in possession of, of a classic road rage psychological disorder. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, and I think that's, that's what happened. You know, Memphis sort of, uh, Judy and Steve will tell you about this, like it, it, it inflicts something on you, right? But I was driving across campus, and I was late again to a Bible study that I would lead. And of course, you get behind somebody who clearly is lost on campus. Now, if you've ever driven through Ole Miss, it's one thing to be, you know, students, here they come again. It's another thing for someone you have no idea, and you can just tell that they're like, wow, look at the pretty buildings, you know? And so I'm behind some guy and I'm like, come on. You know, like maybe I'm gonna lay on my horn if they're gonna sit. And they do like the real full stop, you know, and sit there for a little bit and they're looking both ways. I'm like, nobody's coming, just go. I know it's a rolling stop. I got a ticket for that a couple years ago. So there. (laughs) So (laughs) that is exactly right. That's exactly right. So, we, so the two cars, though, this, this is what's bad. you got to be careful who you yell at on campus because we both pulled into the parking lot in the Union back when there was a parking lot in the Union. We both pulled in there, and I was kind of far away. Well, as I got out of my car, I thought, well, you know what? I'll inflict something on this individual. I'll give him the, <laughs> I'll give him the old glare, you know, that, 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 that withering Newsome glare that I'm, <laughs> I'm sure just really, really upset him. 
But as I get out of the car and close it, and I kind of look over at him, who gets out but a guy in full dress uniform? And all of a sudden, I just went like that. Because here's the thing, and I really can't explain it why. I don't know whether it's because I watched war movies growing up, because I'm sort of in awe of that thing, but I'm in awe of our soldiers. I really am. I, I stand mouth agape at what those guys are called to do for us. I always have. It's always been a thing. I really don't know why. Maybe it's the way my parents raised me or something. But it was instantaneous. When I saw him get up dressed in the uniform that was worthy of respect, that every ounce of, of anxiety, anger, frustration that I might have had towards that guy was gone in a second. Why? Because of how he was clothed. Now look, you see the point. There are those moments in which we begin to feel like life, that God looks at us like he's got road rage, like he's tired of traveling this road of life with us. Metaphor is right on out here. <laughs> but what the trick is, is when all of a sudden we step out of the car, what does he see you clothed in? How have you been clothed? In Jesus' righteousness. And suddenly we see the angels snap to attention. There actually was an NCIS episode about this years ago where some of the NCIS you know, characters are grilling this particular uh, uh, person who they thought was just a sort of homeless drunk. And at one point, he begins to pull off his jacket and reveals a Congressional Medal of Honor around his neck, and they all just pow, snap to attention because they know they're in the presence of royalty. Could you ever imagine the angels snapping to attention because they look at you and they no longer look at you with the cloud of stuff that has clogged your conscience from here until then until God all of a sudden looks and says, he's perfect. He's absolutely perfect. This is my son. This is my daughter. And you know what? I'm so pleased with them that even the angels snap to attention. That is justification by grace through faith. Let's go to the next one here. Did we lose? We lost it. Last thing, and you're wondering why I'm going back into this. Um, the last one that we're going to do here is a code called 9064. Y'all are so patient with me here. And drum roll, look at there. All right, there we are. Then we got to talk about faith. I know we talked about faith last week, but it takes multiple exposures to this to really grasp this. Because the beautiful thing is, is that when, when, when God looks at his people who have embraced him by faith, he looks and sees us in a brand new standing. To say it another way, imputation is what God has done to deliver righteousness to us. Faith is the instrument by which we take it. Did you catch that? That was more important than that. Let me say it again. Imputation is what God has done to deliver righteousness to us. Faith is the instrument, maybe the vehicle, the path by which that comes to us. Romans 4, 5 says this, However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him, another legal term, as righteousness. Notice the words there. The man who does not work, but trusts. From that, three quick things about faith. First of all, faith is not a work. It is not your faith that got you justification. It was grace that got you justification, which is why we say justification by, through the means of, through the instrumentality of grace. But 
the sort of path that it's going to take is through along the avenue of faith. Why are we talking about that? Because it's hard to wrestle with how to conjure up faith. That's what I was trying to say last week. I've had student after student say, I know you really want me to believe something. You're awfully cooked up about it, but I don't know how to believe. But faith is not a work. Faith is actually something that everyone has. Everyone has faith in something. It's not so much a question of whether or not you have it, but a question of what it is directed at. Your faith is with you right now. The question is whether it's focused on the God of the universe and as he has revealed himself in Christ, or whether it's focused on something else. Chief among them, you. There's a whole attention thing dealing with faith that will always look towards something. And sort of idolatry is when that faith is circled back on me and I'm leaning upon my own things. Number two, though, but faith looks away from my works. This is what I wanted to get to last week and couldn't do, and it, it just it was too good to not do, to go back over again. Listen to how forcefully Paul argues. The man who does not work, what Paul is saying is no one can be a Christian um, until you change your attitude not just towards your sins, but also towards your best deeds. That's what he means when he says, who does not work. See, there's a tendency to think that my, my attitude towards God and Christ is fundamentally comprised of sort of feeling sorry for my sins. But what Paul is saying is it's actually, that's not enough. The real difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not their attitude towards their sin. Frankly, most, both actually normally acknowledge their shortcomings. They may be fewer, they may be greater, but everybody acknowledged that the things that they did wrong were things that they did wrong, right? That's not what it is. The difference is in their attitude towards what they call their good deeds. That's the magic. You see, the Pharisee only repents of his sin, the things that he knows he's done wrong. But a Christian repents of their righteousness as well. In other words, all the things that I thought that I was doing really, really well are equally as unacceptable to God which is what Paul means when he says our faith, therefore, looks away from our works to the one who does not work but trusts. Finally, faith always leads to works. Now, we're going to get to that much more in just a couple weeks. Actually, I think about three weeks when we talk about the doctrine of sanctification. But look, you know your faith is alive because of what it produces in you. There's there's fruits, as it were, that come from you digging your roots, your roots of faith, into various things. And when I see death coming out of me, my roots are planted in myself and in sin. But when I see life coming out of me, love, joy, peace, all of those things, we know I'm rooted in God and Christ. More, More about that just soon. Look, the gospel of justification by grace through faith is simply this. You are more sinful and depraved and lost than you could possibly imagine. But you are more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you could ever dare dream. It's it's my best little summary of the gospel. And both of these are true at the same time. But I realize that for people that are church going, that little phrase, if you are in Christ, kind of hangs in the air. How do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I know if I'm a recipient of his mercy? And I want to answer that in a little bit of a different way instead of sort of doing what I normally do, which is kind of microscoping those those motives and simply saying this, don't be afraid to ask that question if you are. Don't be afraid to ask the question, no, 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 no. What does it mean for me to walk around 
with a living, breathing assurance that I belong to my Father and He belongs to me. What does that look like? (laughs) I, I simply want to offer to you that the evidence of the Bible is such that He loves to show mercy. And it reminds me of this wonderful story from an old Scottish divine by the name of Alexander White. I, I got this out of, um, uh, out of Brian Chappell's book, In the Grip of Grace, and it's so good. White was a, was a Scottish minister uh, in the Free Church of Scotland many, many years ago, a century ago or so. And he was telling a story about working really late one night with a fellow uh, pastor who was in the ministry with him on some church business. And the business, he said, was kind of complex and just exhausting and when everything was sort of resolved, it seemed like the older minister just kind of kind of kept lingering around. You ever had somebody do that? Just kind of hanging out and sort of making this idle conversation. And, and, and White said that he seemed to want to say something, uh, but, but he was never really quite able to get to the point. Until finally, in what sounded almost like a joke, White said that the man looked up and said, Now, sir, do you have any word of comfort for an old sinner like me? And somehow, between sort of the pasted-on smile, Dr. White saw that the question was actually really serious and one that, had, that was showing some real agony in the heart of this brother. And he said he wrote, he wrote later in a letter, it took my breath away. He was an old saint, but he didn't know the peace of forgiveness. Not knowing what best to do, White simply rose from his chair, took the hand of the old minister, listen to this, took the hand of the old minister and said, he delights in showing mercy which is a quote from Micah 7, 18. He said, not much more was said by either man. The two parted for the evening. And the next morning, though, Dr. White got a letter from the older minister, and it read this. He said, dear friend, I will never doubt him again. Guilt had hold of me, and I was near the gates of hell. But that word of God comforted me, and I will never doubt him again. I will never despair again. If the devil casts sin in my teeth, I will say, yes, it is all true, and you can't tell the half of it. But I have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. This is the question. (laughs) What is the God with whom you have to deal? (laughs) And is he the one that the Bible talks about who delights in showing mercy, for whom repentance is not begrudged? It's not, it's not doubted. A, 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 a sort of a smoldering ember, he will not sort of quench. And a smoking flax, he's not going to oust. Like there is joy at the center of this. There is hope in the midst of it. His name is Alexander White. And that's the end of the